early 90s in Sweden are not the most fondly remembered of years, particularly 1991 and 1992, as these are the years in which the country's sudden financial crash occurred. The ever-expanding house bubble was suddenly deflated, resulting in a severe credit crunch and widespread bank insolvency. In response to the crisis, the government took swift action in the form of bailouts, with initial estimations at the time calculating the cost of these bailouts at around 4% of Sweden's GDP. Besides the financial crisis, something else was happening on the streets of Sweden's capital city of Stockholm in 1992. Without warning, someone had begun a one-man reign of terror which would last for almost six months, and the scale of police investigation would become one of the largest in Swedish criminal history, second only to the investigation into the assassination of then-Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palme in 1986. But who was this mystery man, and would the investigation finally lead to an arrest? This is Nordic True Crime. It all began on the evening of the 3rd of August, 1991, when 21-year-old David Jebrimariam, originally from Eritrea, was leaving a subway station in Stockholm with two friends. As they chatted together, they paused briefly as David took a cigarette from his pocket and proceeded to light it. It was then that the group of friends noticed something strange there seemed to be a small circular red light scanning across the trees close to where they stood. Then suddenly, without warning, the light made a beeline for David and locked on his back. As they tried to figure out what it was, a gunshot pierced the air, sending the three young men running for their lives. David had been hit just above the hip but managed to escape and make it to the hospital. Luckily for him, his injuries were not life-threatening. There wasn't much evidence for the police to work with. They could see from David's clothes that he had been shot with a small-caliber weapon, but as the bullet could not be found and nobody saw the perpetrator, it was clear that the investigation was going to struggle from the outset. Despite canvassing the immediate area and interviewing the victim's friends and family, no credible leads could be established. In the end, all the police could do was come to the conclusion that the attack was purely random. But it wouldn't be long before another shooting took place, a shooting 
bearing striking similarities to that of the so-called random attack on David. On the 21st of October of the same year, 25-year-old Sharam Khosravi, originally from Iran, was leaving a gym close to Stockholm University. As he walked through a deserted park, he was startled by a rustling noise coming from the trees close to the pathway. Suddenly, he felt a heavy blow to his face and he hit the ground. He had been shot in the jaw. A passerby soon came across the badly injured Sharam, who by this time was lying in a pool of his own blood. An ambulance was called and he was rushed to the hospital. This time, however, unlike the first shooting, evidence was left behind. The assailant may have once again escaped without having been seen, but as Sharam was being transported to the hospital, he felt something strange in his mouth, which he initially thought was a broken tooth. But what he believed to be a tooth turned out to be a part of the bullet which struck his jaw. With the country, and in particular the capital city of Stockholm, now paying close attention to two very similar shootings, the attacks dominated the newspapers and TV news reports. And it wouldn't be long before they had more to discuss, as the third shooting would take place on the 27th of October, just six days after the second attack. Dimitrios Karamalegos was a Greek national who had immigrated to Sweden. He had also fallen on hard times and was living on the streets of Stockholm. That evening, as he was bedding down for the night, he noticed someone cycling past him. And as quickly as he went around the corner, the same man returned, minus his bicycle, and pointed a gun at Dimitrios. He then proceeded to shoot the homeless man twice in the stomach area. Luckily, his injuries were not serious and he managed to run to a nearby police station and report the attack. He was taken to the hospital for treatment but left soon after having only received basic care and the police were unable to track him down again for a second interview. But crucially, he did mention to the police that he saw a red light illuminating from the weapon before he was shot. The days between shootings were getting shorter and the whole city was on red alert. On the 1st of November, Brazil-born Heberson Vieira da Costa was setting up musical instruments for a concert which his band was due to play. As he took a break, he noticed that there was a man with striking red hair dressed in a trench coat standing outside the building acting somewhat strangely. Sometime later, as he continued with his preparations, he had a weird feeling that he was not alone, and he was right. As he turned around, he was met by the same strange man with the red hair pointing a gun directly at him, complete with a red laser. Like most people in the city, or the country for that matter, Heberson knew exactly who the man was and what he was about to do. He took aim and shot him. 
A friend heard the commotion and ran to the aid of Hebersen. He did what he could to apply pressure to his wounds before calling an ambulance. Not only were his injuries so severe that he was forced into early retirement, he would also suffer from post-traumatic stress and have to endure more than 40 separate operations in the years following the shooting. By now, there had been three different shootings and one thing clearly stood out. None of the victims were Swedish-born. They were all immigrants. Was there someone out there who was on a one-person mission of hate to take out as many foreigners as possible? To most, it seemed that way, but as nobody had any idea who he was, it was still too early to say if that was the only motive of the attacker. But one thing was clear. He was either becoming complacent or perhaps brazen with his attacks. At the scene of the latest shooting of Hibberson Vieria da Costa, a bullet and shell casings were left behind, and there was also a witness who saw the attacker flee the scene of the crime. And from both her and Hibberson's description, a composite sketch was drawn up. The police now had their most substantial evidence to date. But even with the heightened media and public desire to know the real identity of the perpetrator, the shootings wouldn't be stopping anytime soon. On the 8th of November, 1991, Jimmy Ranjbar, a married Iranian student with two kids, who had at the time been living in Sweden for the best part of 10 years, was walking towards the entrance of a block of student apartments when someone rushed from the shadows and shot him in the back of the head at point-blank range. The emergency services did all they could to save his life, but his injuries were severe, and he passed away in hospital later that night. The attacker, now more commonly referred to as the Laser Man, had committed his first murder. It was now evident that the attacker's approach had gone through a significant change. Initially, there was a considerable distance between the laser man and his victims, but as the shootings became more frequent, he got closer and closer to his intended targets, so much more closer that the murder of Jimmy was basically a point-blank execution. Had the laser man decided to kill someone, in order to be taken more seriously, or had he always intended to kill his targets and had become frustrated at not being able to do so from afar. With all evidence available to the police, the bullet fragments, shell casings, the red laser and the bullet found lodged in the head of Jimmy, there was no doubt that the shootings were all carried out by the same person. It was then that the police decided to go public with the composite sketch created from the witness who saw the attacker flee the scene of the shooting of Heberson. And in doing so, it wasn't long before they were inundated with calls from concerned members of the public about strange men with glasses and distinctive red hair. But unfortunately, these calls didn't lead to an arrest or significant development in the investigation. The police were now expecting an imminent fifth shooting. But to their surprise, 
the attack suddenly stopped, just as quickly as they had started. It would be two months before another shooting occurred. It would later be revealed that the only reason the attack stopped so suddenly was because the laser man had booked a holiday to Las Vegas to gamble and visit the Grand Canyon. It was as straightforward as that. It was now 1992, and with the police struggling to progress with their investigation, the second wave of shootings were about to begin. On the 22nd of January, in the town of Uppsala, to the north of Stockholm, Erik Bonkam Rudlov, a Chilean-born student, was out walking with his wife when a masked man appeared out of nowhere, startling the confused couple. And before they could say anything, he raised his gun and shot Eric in the head. Despite being shot in the head, Eric's injuries were not as serious as first thought, and he survived the shooting. However, in regards to this attack, there were once again notable changes to the approach taken by the laser man. He had ditched his red herring glasses disguise for a balaclava, and when the bullet was retrieved from Eric's head, it was of a different caliber to that used in the previous shootings. Why had he changed his method of approach? Was he trying to shake the police off his tail? Or had the composite sketch released to the public spooked him? Whatever the reason, the police were certain that the latest attack was the work of the laser man. The next attack was imminent and perhaps carried out in anger after it was revealed by the media that Erik had survived the latest shooting. The laser man traveled back to Stockholm from Uppsala and shot Charles de la Cama, a bus driver originally from Zimbabwe, in the middle of the day as he was walking down the street. He was hit in the stomach, but once again, the wounds received by the victim were not serious enough to threaten his life. The laser man's anger and thirst for violence seemed to be taking hold. That same evening, he entered a bar popular with Somalians. As with the previous attacks, he didn't speak. He just raised his gun and started shooting. When the dust had settled and the laser man had made his escape, it was discovered that only two men were hit by the gunfire, both in the head. But miraculously, their injuries were not serious. It was another lucky escape for the innocent victims of the laser man. It had been a hectic couple of days in regards to the sharp increase in shootings. However, it was also the most significant in terms of evidence gathered by the police. In the aftermath of the shooting of Charles de la Cama, a man witnessed someone wearing a balaclava jumping into a car and driving off at speed. He took note of the registration and model of car and informed the police. They now knew the possible getaway car used by the laser man. But despite this, just when it seemed as though he was within their reach, 
he once again managed to stay one step ahead of the authorities. The number plate on the vehicle belonged to a different stolen car. However, evidence gathered at the scene of the bar shooting did reveal something. It was understandably strange that the two men who were both shot in the head had survived, just as it was with the previous victims of the laser man. And it was the bullets found on the floor of the bar which could perhaps explain why this was the case. All of the bullets were damaged in the same way, damage which looked to have been caused by the barrel of the gun. This had clearly affected the capabilities of the ammunition, which, as a result, had more than likely spared the lives of many of the unknown attacker's victims. It would be five more days before the next attack on the capital city. On the 28th of January, the laser man walked into a convenience store and shot Isa Ibar, an immigrant of Syrian origin, four times in the head and arm. He suffered serious injuries, but managed to call the police and later made a full recovery. And just two days after this incident, the laser man walked into another store owned by Hassan Satara and shot him in the head. Satara would also survive his injuries, but was sadly left with permanent brain damage. The most substantial visual evidence to date had been the sighting of the masked man speeding off in the white Nissan Micra SLX, bearing the registration plate of the stolen car. And this would be the main focus of the police investigation going forward. It would be a mammoth task, but they aimed to trace every single car of that particular Nissan model, which had been registered in Sweden. And it wasn't long before one car in particular caught their interest. A vehicle had been hired from a car hire company in Stockholm at the time of the shootings on the 22nd and 23rd of January by a man called Jon Asonius. And through checking the mileage during the time of hire, it was determined that it was plausible that the car could have travelled from Stockholm to Uppsala and back and still have time to carry out both shootings. The police needed to speak to Asonius and speak to him quick. But as with much of the investigation, they were once again stopped in their tracks. Despite hiring the car in his real name, both the address and phone number he gave were fake. They did, however, discover that he rented a mailbox in town where it was believed that he received all of his mail. So the police left a note for him to contact them to make an appointment to come in for routine questioning to help with their inquiries. But as with before, he was one step ahead of the authorities. He of course knew what model of car the police were looking for and with that information in mind, he left the country for South Africa and wouldn't return to Sweden until May of 1992. It was now March, two months since the last shooting, 
and as the attacks had seemingly stopped without explanation, the police noticed that another crime spree which was plaguing the city also came to an abrupt halt. 17 banks had been robbed in the Stockholm area and each time the man fled on, believe it or not, a bicycle. Was it just a coincidence that both events suddenly stopped or was it possible that the laser man was also responsible for the bank robberies? The police were still on the hunt for Jonas Sonius and in his unexplained absence, they continued to delve into his past. One of the detectives involved in the pursuit of the laser man was also part of the investigation into the assassination of then Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palme some six years earlier. And during this investigation, Jon Ansonius came to his attention. He was of particular interest to the police in regards to the murder of the Prime Minister, a murder which is still unsolved as of today, as he was a well-known, outspoken hater of Olof Palme and his policies. But just as quickly as he became a person of interest, he was removed from the list of suspects, as it was discovered that he was serving time in Kumla prison for a series of violent crimes when the murder took place. But as Olof Palme was particularly known for his favorable policies and attitude towards refugees and foreign nationals moving to Sweden for a better life, this tied in with the perceived prejudice of the later man. He was now, without doubt, the number one suspect in the shootings, and there was more evidence to come. The police became aware that Asunius was a member of several pawnbroker stores in the city, and in the immediate aftermath of various robberies, he had paid these stores in return for goods he had pawned. Asonius returned to Sweden in the middle of May 1992, and at the same time, the police investigation into his private life had unearthed vital information which would have them within touching distance of making an arrest. They had found out that he sometimes rented videos from a local store and decided to put a surveillance team on the premises in the chance that he made a visit to the shop. And that is exactly what he did. After returning some videos, the police tracked him to an apartment on Ynglingagatan, the northern part of Vasastan, Stockholm. They were closing in on public enemy number one. On the 12th of June 1992, Asonis left his home in the early hours of the morning and cycled to Södermalm. When there, he stood in the doorway of an apartment building, changed clothes, and in full view of the police surveillance team, walked into a bank and committed robbery number 18. The officers moved quickly to apprehend Asonius, and after a short-lived gunfight, he was overpowered and arrested. The wanted posters, created from witness testimonies, which had been distributed to the public via the media and police, showed a man with long striking red hair, glasses and piercing blue eyes. But in reality, the laser man looked nothing like the man in the sketch. 
He had dark hair, didn't wear glasses, and by now had a long, dark beard. So who exactly was Jon Ansonius? Jon Ansonius, raised as Wolfgang Alexander Sag, was born on the 12th of July 1953 on the island of Lidingö to a German mother and Swiss father. He grew up in Vellingby, a working-class suburb of Stockholm, and according to various sources, was teased and bullied at school for having very dark hair and eyes, and in particular for not being Swedish. As a young adult, he did his best to blend into Swedish society by dyeing his hair blonde and wearing blue contact lenses, and even went as far as to change his name to Jon Wolfgang Stannerman, and laterally Jon Wolfgang Asunius. Throughout his young life, he developed a strong hatred for communists, social democrats, and, ironically, immigrants. And it was this hate of immigrants which led him to make the decision to go out and begin his killing spree. Initially, he planned to target immigrant criminals, but in the end, he decided that he would just kill any random immigrant he came across. Through these actions, he believed that he would be able to scare people away from moving to Sweden from other countries. The trial began in 1993, and on the 1st of December of the same year, Asunius was sentenced to life in prison for nine attempted murders and three bank robberies. He was acquitted of two attempted murders. Asunius appealed his conviction and even assaulted two members of his defense team at the prison where he was serving his sentence. And in January of 1995, when his appeal was heard at the Svea Court of Appeal, he assaulted his new defense team in front of a full courtroom. One of his defense team was even filmed on TV, leaving the court with blood running down her forehead as a result of the attack. In light of this, Asonius was refused permission to change his defense team for a second time and was made to sit through the remainder of the proceedings in handcuffs. On the 19th of May 1995, the court rejected his appeal and upheld his life sentence. In August of 2000, Asunius admitted that he was responsible for 10 attempted murders and 20 bank robberies. However, the court rejected his confession on the basis that he lacked any credibility. The initial sentence would stand. In recent times, Asunius has had three applications to have his sentence determined by time rejected, with a recent failed application coming as recently as 2012. Even when the dust of his confessions and appeals had settled, in what seemed by many as an attempt to keep himself in the minds of the Swedish media and people, this wouldn't be the last time the world would hear about the laser man. A prosecution was launched in Germany against Asonius for the murder of Blanca Smingrod in 1992 in Frankfurt. Through their investigation, 
it was determined that he had gotten into an argument with the victim, accusing her of stealing from him whilst he was eating in the restaurant where she worked. And just one week later, she was dead. There was evidence from witnesses in regards to the argument, but the more concrete evidence came in the form of bullet cases found at the scene of the crime, which were an exact match with those found at the shootings in Stockholm. In late 2016, Asonius was extradited to Germany and was subsequently found guilty of the murder and received a lifetime sentence. And in 2018, he was extradited back to Sweden to serve his time. In popular culture, the author and journalist Gela Tamas wrote a book about the case which became a bestseller and was, in 2005, adapted into a play which was followed up by a miniseries produced by Swedish TV station SVT. In his book, Tamas discussed the rise of xenophobic feelings in the early 90s in Sweden and suggests that Asunia's actions could well be a result of one of his many attempts to prove his identity as a true Swedish man by separating himself from emigrants. Tamas also visited Asunia's in prison shortly after he confessed back in 2000 to all of the shootings and bank robberies. On meeting him, he noticed almost immediately that Asonius was completely void of any empathy for his victims. Speaking to Swedish radio station P3 for a documentary about the laser man, Thomas said that he asked him if he felt anything for his victims, and this was his reply. Nothing. I feel nothing. I know that I should, and I have really tried to feel for them but I feel nothing. And I know that that is one of the problems that I have. 